Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. Sometime in the early 2000s, I met Luke Eve and he's been a friend and colleague of mine ever since. He's made his first feature film as a director and it is coming out in early April in Australia on Netflix. It's called I Met a Girl. So I'm catching up with Luke Eve at his home in Valencia in Spain because that's where all Australian filmmakers makers like to hang out <laughs> how are you going there luke hey cj how are you it's uh, it's kind of a temporary home but uh yeah home nonetheless this year i guess well i guess we'll get to how you got to valencia but essentially how you got to valencia is kind of tied up in how you got to make your first feature film yeah because your path to this film was via a couple of web series that you make that are thematically linked to your film and also linked via your screenwriter? Yes. Um, I, I think it's impossible to talk about I Met a Girl without talking about um, two web series that I made, the first being uh, Low Life in 2014, 2015, and then uh, another series which was sort of a companion series to that uh, called High Life, which was in about 2017. And High Life was actually written by uh, Glenn Dolman and, and produced by Adam Dolman, uh, their twins. And it was that sort of filmmaking team, I guess, once we established our relationship on High Life that uh, allowed us to move forward and, and make I Met a Girl together. So, um, yeah, and because they were both, Low Life was about depression and then High Life was about uh, bipolar, they were sort of linked, I guess, and our feature film is about a, uh, a gentleman with uh, schizophrenia. So there's definitely a thread there um, and a subject matter that I'm sort of interested in and has formed or shaped the majority of my work, I guess, in the last five or six years. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk more on that in a second, but just tell us, because I Met a Girl has sort of twists and turns and surprises and relies on a bit of mystery and stuff. Tell us your version that you'd like to, us to know going in. <laughs> of what I think the film is about, you mean? Well, just or... give us just a little bit of something. That, but yeah. I don't want to spoil it, so you tell us what you think is fair, fair game to know. Okay. Uh, so I Met a Girl was about a, uh, a young musician by the name of Devon who uh, suffers from schizophrenia. And he lives in uh, Perth and he is uh, sort of having a terrible week. You know, he's been kicked out of home. He loses his job. He's very sort of down on his luck and, and one day meets this amazing uh, young woman that he falls incredibly in love with and spends a very sort of magical day and night with. Uh, and he wakes up the next morning and she's left him a note saying, meet me in Sydney. And he drops everything and treks off across the country in search of her. And as he's traveling, he starts to realize, and perhaps we start to realize as well, that maybe that girl doesn't exist, that she is uh, all in his head. So, um, and in the background, his brother sort of sets off trying to find him as well. And it's, it's essentially a story about, uh, it's, it's, it's a mental health story wrapped up in a love story, I guess is the best way to to sell it. Sure. So arriving at the tone for this one, how did you sort of find your 
way of dealing with tone developing through the web series to this one in terms of, as you say, you're dealing with, on the one hand, a serious issue, mental health, and on the other hand, you're dealing with essentially the conventions and the tropes and potentially the style and the lightness of touch of rom-com. Yeah, it's such a good question because it was, um, for me as a director, definitely the the biggest challenge. And um, I I think with, you know, Low Life was a sort of dramedy, I guess, a pretty straightforward kind of dramedy. And then High Life was more of a drama. I I would say that High Life in a way was more of a, a serious depiction of what it's like for somebody to have bipolar. And then with this, even though it's a, a very kind of point of view heavy film from the point of view of Devon and he's got schizophrenia, you know, I, I definitely, we felt like we couldn't make the film as harder hitting sort of portrayal as say High Life was. We needed to make it sort of accessible to some degree. I sort of hate that word, but it's probably the best way to to describe it. So for me, I guess because of the, the mental health aspects, you know, that's something that I take really seriously and so does Glenn, the writer. And so we, we wanted to be really sort of truthful and authentic in our portrayal of that and, and respectful, yet at the same time try and wrap it up in a story that we thought could be quite entertaining. And so uh, a love story, I guess, is is was a good vehicle for that. So um I'm, you know, but juggling that both on set and then in the edit was probably our trickiest part, you know, is how heavy do we go on the mental health depiction and then, you know, how fantastical or how soft do we go with the romance? And that's a that's a tough thing to kind of play with. Um, and also, you know, you've got sales agents wanting the film to be a bit more uh, romantic in terms of the way they sell it. Uh, and I guess my sensibilities were more trying to make it uh you know authentic in terms of the depiction of mental illness so trying to get that balance was was really tricky um and it involved lots of discussions at script stage with glenn and then uh in rehearsals as well with brenton thwaites who plays devon just trying to get the the tone of that but then again even further in terms of uh you know in the edit as well we were sort of playing with that and adjusting it uh with my editor melody ennen so it's you know I guess these things never quite get solved in at, at script stage. You know you're, you're sort of making a different film along every part of the process, which is what's really interesting about it. But it was definitely the the major thing for us to sort of combat and, and play with. Right, and on a kind of meta level, or slightly more meta level, it feels like you're addressing the whole concept of the manic pixie dream girl in a way, because. In your film, she is rather ideal, but the fact yeah. is that she might not exist. <laughs> yeah. And I have to admit, like, we, you know, I think if this film was made maybe five or ten years ago, it would be fine to just make a film about the, you know, the pixie dream girl. And and and, and we were a little bit worried, I guess, in terms of marketing, of putting it out there, that that's what this film is about. And it's, it's yeah, like you say, it's a, it's a challenge of that in terms of the fact that, you know, as as the film progresses, you start to, you start to question whether or not she even exists. Um, and for, for Devon, the lead, you know, the, the main character, it's more, it's more of an issue. It's, it's not just an issue, I guess, of, you know, finding love and being obsessed by this girl. It's he feels like he really needs her to be real 
to prove that he is sane and and not crazy, you know. So um, I think that 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 element of the dream girl I think takes on extra weight and extra gravitas because of Devon's condition, if that makes sense. Sure. And like many, many great movies, you've combined your hero's emotional journey with a physical journey. He literally crosses the largest island continent on earth, our great continent of Australia. How did yeah, you we- approach the, the, the scope of that to, to, to try and let people understand within this film just the huge distances he was traveling? Yeah, and especially, you know, I mean, I'm really proud of the production values of the film, you know, for it's not a big budget movie by any by any standards. And so trying to get that or trying to portray that on screen uh, was always tough. You know, we were filming in uh, Perth for about five weeks and then luckily, you know, Western Australia offered up a lot of like really diverse landscapes. So we were able to get out of Perth for about three days and not too far away, you know, from Perth either, just a few hours out, you're suddenly in massive deserts and salt uh, salt flats and things like that. So we were able to uh, film some really striking landscapes to help us kind of tell that story. And then the, the final uh, sort of three or four days of shooting were back in Sydney. So we were able to kind of complete that journey by shooting some stuff on the outskirts of Sydney and then central Sydney as well to kind of really tell or really show the... Uh, the journey across Australia, although obviously that was very much cheated. It was really only a couple of locations <laughs> in general. But I, I feel like uh, I feel like the landscapes that we chose and the uh, the locations that we chose uh, tell the story reasonably well. Absolutely. Did you feel while you were shooting it? I mean, because you are telling a very intimate story about a young man and and literally at times, you know, what's going on inside his head. But you're also doing it. With this, with this huge travel log type element, did you feel the sense at all that you were documenting or celebrating Australia and its and its look and feel and vibe at all, or was that sort of always secondary? Um, probably secondary to a degree. I, I mean, I think it was funny. I just having answered that last question, I suddenly realised that in pre production or maybe even before we started pre-production, I think I was really championing this idea that we would that we would roll the crew across most of Australia and try and film uh, as much of Australia as possible <laughs> with Brenton. And then you realise that that's just impossible. You know, it's just, you know, and that's why we have the magic of filmmaking as well. You don't need to do that. But there was a part of me that really was attracted to this idea of trying to do a large part of that journey and document it uh, and film it um, and put it on a big screen, which I think I would have really loved. But then you just realise, you know, for the budget and the schedule in particular, that's just impossible. Um, but to answer your question, I, I, you know, I do feel uh, that that landscape, I, I, I did want to show it in a really interesting kind of bold way, I guess. I've spent a lot of my time over the last few years overseas, so... I'm always like really romantic about the way I think about Australia in a way. And so when we were filming, you know, the movie has a very rich sort of colour palette anyway. It's very different, I think, from a lot of Australian films, which tend to be very sort of desaturated in their approach. Um, and we, we chose a really colourful palette. And so, 
you know, when you're out in those amazing landscapes and you've just got this incredibly white earth or red earth and these amazing blue skies, it was it was hard not to fall in love with that and try and show it in a really cinematic way. So I think um, to a degree we did. It was definitely there cinematically, but it, it wasn't first and foremost for me, I guess, in terms of, the you know, the celebration of Australian landscapes, like you suggest. But um, that colour palette I think is just amazing. Uh, but, you know, I also loved when we arrived in Sydney. It's funny, I you know, I've talked to you about this in the past as well. I feel a lot of Australian films tend to shy away from, you know, Sydney Harbour or the Harbour Bridge or the Opera House because they feel like it's maybe too iconic and a bit cheesy, whereas we we just want to kind of eat it up. There's something very romantic about that for us. Um, and so we, we really showcased Perth for the beautiful city that it is and also Sydney as well. Like I... I absolutely loved kind of shooting along the harbour and in Hyde Park and these really kind of iconic spots of Sydney and really showcasing them and their natural beauty. So that was fun for me. Absolutely. And also for international audiences or for people who just don't get (laughs) the nature of the (laughs) geographic Australia, you've got these two bookends, Perth and Sydney, surrounded by water, surrounded by some of the most beautiful water and harbours in the world. But then in the middle, you've got brutal desert. Yeah. And And that's a really interesting thing about our landscape. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you say that we one of the things that we really talked about, the production designer and, and cinematographer and I, um, we talked about this idea that, you know, he lives in in Perth and so you're right, like it's on the water and then he ends up in Sydney and then you see the water there. So we felt like the, the water elements were really important to showcase that he feels comfortable in a town by the water and then when he gets to Sydney he feels kind of relieved but exactly that once he leaves and he's out in the middle and it's just hot and bright and dry we really wanted to showcase that to show that he was really out of his element and to really showcase yeah how harsh and how brutal the Australian landscape is which it it really is I mean when we were filming it was you know 45 degrees out in the salt flats it was um it was brutal um and so, yeah, the idea of like traveling across Australia and filming the rest of it like that would have been ludicrous. But uh, it is an amazing, an amazing landscape of, of nothingness to a, to a degree. And it was, yeah, lovely to showcase that. Now, I'm talking to you kind of on the eve of your film debuting on Netflix. And depending on where people are listening, it might have already dropped. I imagine this is a strange time for you even more than it would be if it was about to come out in theaters because i was imagine that if it was about to come out in theaters you'd have a greater sense of like what they call the tracking and you'd have more of a sense of how many people were likely to go see it in its first few days but at the moment it must feel a little bit i imagine like you're just staring into a big hole and you have no idea how many people are going to jump in yeah (laughs) um exactly that like we you know, we, we completed the film a year ago and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's, you know, we've been trying to navigate the pandemic for the last year and trying to release the film. It's been so difficult. And, you know, we're not alone. Like, you know, you know Christopher Nolan had trouble as well. So <laughs> yeah. a lot of, so, I mean, most films last year, it was amazing just watching their release dates just getting pushed back or suddenly just released on, you know, video on demand. And 
like people, there, there was no answers, you know. It was things were changing so much so quickly that we were just trying to roll with the punches. And so at one point we were, you know, meant to premiere at a, a major festival last year in Australia and then obviously we had this sort of mini kind of outbreak and things got shut down. So that, that went away and then that was going to lead into a theatrical release for us. So, you know, we did have all that planned of, you know, a festival and then, a theatrical release and it would have been great and then but it was just so difficult because of what was happening with the pandemic and now here we are a year later uh or you know six months later from that point and yeah we're about to release on netflix which i'm truly happy for because i just think you know as as, as wonderful as it is to have your film in a in a theater uh you're never going to have as many eyeballs on it as you are on a major platform like netflix so this is you know this is a fantastic solution but it's very weird for me. I'm sort of sitting halfway across the world. You're totally right. Um, we haven't seen a lot of press in the build-up. Netflix doesn't do that. So, it, you know, there's been a little bit of rumblings on social media about it. Um, I am yet to actually sit in a cinema with an audience and watch it, which is really weird and, ah. and, and kind of heartbreaking, to be honest, apart from test screenings that we did um sorry we we you know we 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 screened it in the cinema when we were previewing certain cuts like rough cut fine cut and then at the end we did a little bit of a uh, a sort of test screening with a smallish kind of audience so that that's about the the extent of me being able to enjoy it with an audience at the moment and you know those test screenings are kind of terrifying anyway because you you just <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly enjoyable um so I haven't had that moment, you know, I haven't had that beautiful filmmaker moment of having the premiere and sharing it with, you know, cast and crew and things like that, which feels a bit empty, I have to admit, but I've sort of gotten over it and and I'm just now waiting for it to be released on, on Friday and it, it's going to be weird, you know, I'm going to be terrified sitting on social media instead of being terrified sitting in a cinema. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a different world these days. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you verbalised that because... As the year or the last 18 months have gone on and I've been thinking about filmmakers seeing their films go to streaming directly and not have that cinema experience, I have been thinking a lot about how that makes them feel. And I hadn't necessarily thought of that moment that you just mentioned, you know, that moment of sitting amongst 400 other people watching your yeah. film for the first time and experiencing the laughs and experiencing yeah. the holding of breath and all of that. Yeah. That is and a I, shame. And yeah. That to me, I have to admit, I mean, over the last sort of year of trying to get the film out there, there's been moments when I've just been, you know, almost in tears about it, just thinking, God, I finally made this movie. Uh, and, you know, you said, you know, we met in the early 2000s and then here I am making, you know, my debut feature, which I don't know if that's amazing or, or depressing, but we'll go with amazing. Um, <laughs> always go with amazing. Always go with amazing. Um, and yet, you know, suddenly I make this film and I'm so happy that it's finally done and then, then the you know, the pandemic hits and it's like, oh, my God, no one's ever going to see it. Um, and that is, yeah, it's tough. You know, I... You know, it was meant to be released theatrically in the US as well, but of course the US has just been a bit of a disaster this year. So it went straight video on demand there. Uh, we screened at Busan International Film Festival where essentially it had its world premiere, but we couldn't go. But you couldn't go. Oh, no. And it's funny, I was set to go and then a week before the screening, 
they had a little out uh, little outbreak in in Seoul, so they had to can it. So it was just every step of the way, these little things kept happening, which just kept stopping me from having. It's funny. I, I was describing it to Adam Dolman, the producer. I, I just felt like I didn't have closure, and I know that feels weird, but you know, it's like you make something, and then it. I, I haven't experienced it with an audience, and I haven't really experienced people's reactions to it. So it it does feel a little open ended to me. So. Um, and you know what it's like, even even having made short films in the past or things that have gone to television, you kind of get a sense straight away of being able to enjoy people's responses to it. So um, I've kind of been robbed of that at the moment, but I, I do feel like once it kind of goes live this week, no doubt there'll be some some rumblings, good or bad, on social media that I can monitor. Um, yeah, <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't, but anyway, it'll be fun. I won't so be able to help myself. Did people in Seoul, did it actually screen in front of people in an audience in Seoul? It did. It, it screened in front of a, I think, 30 or 40% capacity um, audience, um, which, again, was a real shame because up until about two weeks before the festival, they were thinking it was going to be a full, you know, open festival and it was going to be one of the first in the world. But then they had the outbreak, so they had to... Uh, they actually downsized the festival, so some films went and it turned into, I think, from two weeks down to one week and uh, screenings were only sort of, you know, 30 or 40% full. I did a and a still with Glenn, so um, I was sitting here in Valencia and, and, you know, had my sort of, you know, head beamed up onto the large screen and talked, <laughs> yeah. to, talked to the 50 or 60 people or whatever that was in the audience because that was capacity. So. Um, Staring down at them saying, you stole my experience. (laughs) (laughs) It was unusual, but they asked some wonderful questions. They really kind of understood it and really enjoyed it. And and now, interestingly enough, it's actually in cinemas in Korea. It's actually now uh, on a theatrical release throughout Korea. And that's been amazing, sort of watching that on social media and having people write to me and um, the response that way has been fantastic. So it's interesting at the moment, you know, we're about to launch on Netflix, which is great. It's on, it's just come out on Amazon and Hulu in the U S and now it's out at cinemas in, in Korea and it's about to be in Germany as well. So it's feeling like it's kind of, you know, culminated in, into this now. So it, it is feeling a bit more like a, a, a release now of the film, which is, which is great. So it's going to go to cinemas in Germany. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you can which- go to that. <laughs> That's true. I'm, You're yeah. in Spain. Go see it in a German <laughs> cinema. Yeah, I mean, I should, right? Like, it's, you know. It's Absolutely. Not I was kind of surprised by that, but it, because, you know, Germany is not in the greatest shape at the moment in terms of COVID. But um, I think it's out in a few weeks. So who knows? Maybe maybe if they can get the vaccine rolled out pretty quickly. I am tempted. That's, I mean, I would love That's just a train it. ride and a mask away. <laughs> and a couple of shots, Yeah. 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 Well, who knows? I mean, go see it in Germany. That could be great. But also, you never know if the algorithms speak to each other in the right way. You could have this huge, huge Netflix hit and then they'll throw money at you and then you'll make your second one very quickly and then that'll have its world premiere at the Sydney Film Festival and you'll finally get what you were missing out on. Fantastic. Let's hope. Let's see if that happens. Let's just hope that it doesn't take as long to get the second film off the ground. But, you know, we'll see. So we are um, we're not quite on the eve of the Oscars, but we're closing in on them. And I know you love your Oscars. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's coming up at the Oscars. Sure. Let's do it. How do, you, 
How do you feel about the nominees this year? What's uh, of the best picture nominees? Are any big favorites of yours? Um, I, it's a funny year, isn't it, for me? I, I mean, I think, I, I guess, because of the pandemic and exactly what we just talked about, uh, the difficulties of actually releasing movies. I think what we've seen is like a you know a bunch of films that have come out that are you know quite independent and small and maybe might not have got the limelight that they would have on a normal year, which I'm finding really interesting. You know, I, I think I think the the selection of films is great. I I was a big fan of uh, Nomadland. I you know and Promising Young Woman and Another Round for me was like you know one of my favorite films uh, of the last twelve months. So. Uh, there's a few films there that I'm absolutely loving, but I, I do like the the smaller playing field in a way, or the more level playing field. Yeah, it does. It certainly has had an effect. There's no doubt that the mm. crazy release strategies that have had to go into effect, and the fact that they've allowed movies that have only ever streamed as a yeah. one-off for this year only, has meant certainly that there are interesting nominations like i'm not sure that sound of metal or even promising young woman would have been on that list in a more traditional year for different reasons i think promising young woman has sort of made its way on because of its boldness and i'm sure it's probably very widely talked about on social media and i know that of the podcast episodes of movie land the episode where i talked to a colleague about promising young woman has been listened to like 10 times more than the next most popular episode so people are seeking out discussions about that film and sound of metal you know it's a tiny quiet very conventional drama that's just done very well but i think it's probably something that people have enjoyed just sitting at home and watching on their screens you know it suits the small screen just fine and especially if you put on headphones and really experience that sound design yeah i agree uh i really liked um, metal you know i really enjoyed that film and i watched it exactly that way with the headphones on um uh and look even even minari to a degree right is it it's a pretty small movie to some degree but there's I loved its innocence and its simplicity, uh, and it feels like it's almost a year of that. You know, I mean, Nomadland. I mean, is is a very simple, sparse film in many yeah. ways. I, it, yeah, it really touched me. I think. Also, I think I, you know, I saw Nomadland. It was the first movie I saw in the cinema for a year when I right. briefly. So I was already walking. Just you know, I was already crying as I was walking up the steps of the Verona in Sydney, just out of joy of being at the cinema. So. Um, you were ready. I was really ready. <laughs> My biggest, I mean, I've, obviously there are films that I think should be there that aren't, such as The Assistant or Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Yep. But in terms of the actual films that the Oscars have decided to acknowledge, to look at, my biggest disappointment, I suppose, is that Another Round is only in Best International Film and is not actually among the nominees for Best Picture, like Parasite was last year as a non-English language film. I think of the films that Oscar is looking at, Another Round is easily the best and it would have would be my winner among those, but it's not even nominated in the Best Picture. I think it's incredible. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I yeah, am kind of shocked as well that it's not part of the, the, the Best Picture noms and... 
for me, it was probably the film of the year. Um, you know, as much as I loved Nomadland, I, there was something about another round, and I only caught it a couple of days ago, actually, finally. So, uh, but I thought it was incredible and and beautiful and 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 powerful. And yeah, it's a shame that it's uh, it's not nominated for best picture. Yeah, it is very nice that Thomas Vinterberg is nominated for best director yep. for it. And I think what something about another round that makes it so special is his experience shows. You know what I mean? The thing about Nomadland and Promising Young Woman is they're very exciting because they are Promising Young Woman is a debut feature and it's bold and in your face. And Nomadland is a third feature of someone who's developing their style consistently and calmly and progressively. But another round, like Vinterberg, however, I guess he's in his 50s or something, he's like a master now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He knows exactly yep. what he's doing. And another round is just perfect from moment to moment. It's just such sublime filmmaking. Um, it's quite, it takes your breath away. It's wonderfully directed, isn't it? It's like mm. it's you, you're aware that when you're watching it, that it's in, you're in the, the hands of somebody very experienced and very accomplished. Uh, and it was, yeah, I was enthralled. And you know, I, that would come down a little to Mads, obviously, as well, the lead actor who was, I, I could yeah. watch you know, all day. I mean, he's just incredible. But, um, him and, 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 and Thomas have now made a couple of films together. So, um, yeah, they obviously have a really wonderful relationship and it shows on screen. Yeah, all the acting is so good. And as you say, Mads is incredible. He should have been nominated for Best Actor. That's weird. But anyway, yeah. so of the ones nominated for Best Picture, I actually I, – look, I liked Nomadland. It was fine. I don't think it's the Best Picture. A Promising Young Woman, I liked most of it, but I, I have – big problems with the last 15 minutes or the last 10 minutes that I think yeah, jettisoned <laughs> the film. But I think uh, Judas and the Black Messiah would be a worthy winner. I think it's a pretty excellent movie. Have you seen that one yet? I haven't, unfortunately. I haven't seen that or The Father. They're the two that I haven't seen. So. Well, The Father is interesting because I saw The Father the other night and The Father is the heavy, heavy, heavy dramatic version of what you were kind of talking about in relation to your film. Because right. the father is all takes place. It gives you the perspective of an elderly man suffering from dementia. Now, obviously, that's not your film. But as you were saying about um, I Met a Girl, you're telling it often from the perspective of your lead character and he is suffering from schizophrenia. So yeah. you are giving us a perspective that might not be exactly the reality of the real yeah. world situation. And that the entire movie, The Father, is all told only from Anthony Hopkins' character's perspective. Wow. So everything is constantly shifting and confusing and replacing and changing because that's what's going on in his mind. Wow. So the film simultaneously seems to take place over the course of one day and seven years and different actors at different times play the same people and people disappear and reappear and he's con and he suddenly turns oh, and he's in a different location because it's all his perspective. That sounds amazing. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, that and amazing. as a feat of directing and screenwriting and editing, it's astonishing. Wow, okay. 
you've sold me. I'll check it yeah. out. It's a tough hang. It's yeah. um, it's one of the saddest movies I've seen in a long time. <laughs> a tough hang. <laughs> <laughs> I love a tough hang. Shut me in. I'm stuck yeah. in Spain. Something, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it is so well conceived. Right. Just yeah, they they the way it's it all fits together is really really clever. Fantastic. And what did you think of Mank? I. Look, I, I sort of, I sort of feel like Mank. You know, I'm not surprised that it got the most nominations. Is that right? I think uh, it's the sort of film that the Academy would love. You know, it's about filmmaking. <laughs> it's nostalgic, I, and I think again, maybe a few years ago, it would probably clean up. I, I don't think it will win the big awards. Um, I liked it because I'm a fan of you know that era, but I'm. I found the film a little cold, to be honest. I, 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 uh, I, I wasn't really moved emotionally by it, but I enjoyed the spectacle of it. You know, I loved, I loved the, the cinematography and I loved the little kind of sound uh, situations they were playing with there. And obviously, the, you know, the storyline is great and the acting is fantastic. Gary Oldman's amazing. But I just, I wasn't really emotionally sucked in. What about you? Um, yeah, I don't think it's an emotional film. It's not a film that's designed to move you. It's it's mm. kind of an intellectual exercise and a historical exercise and a sort of uh, – I, I, I had the experience that while I was watching it, I was like, well, I'm really enjoying this because this movie is for me. You know, yeah. I've read more books about Orson Welles than about any other person ever. Um, yeah. I'm fascinated by Orson Welles and the creation of Citizen Kane. Herman Mankiewicz is adjacent to that. He co-wrote it, you know. So I was like, this film is totally for me, and so I'm truly yeah. enjoying it, but I wonder how many me's are out there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can see how it wouldn't have wide appeal. <laughs> no, I don't think so and yet i mean they spent a lot of money on it didn't they hoping that there would be a lot of views out there in the world so um and look it's it's definitely a spectacle right like it looks sensational it's a it's a great film but it's just um yeah i just i don't know it, it disappeared from my mind reasonably quickly afterwards which is a horrible thing to say and i'm a you know massive fincher fan but uh yeah, I just I couldn't really engage. I guess. Yeah, well, it's 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 kind of like you said, that's not its purpose, and so you're, you're totally right in that. It's more about the spectacle and a celebration, I guess, of that of that era and of that amazing film in a way. Yeah, you know? it's a loosey goosey screenplay. It seems to move from like it's the story about him and her, but then it's the story yeah. about the creation of the film, but then it's the story about politics of the era. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of rolls through different themes. Yes. And, and I'm guessing deliberately, you know, um, but you're totally right. I, I you know, I, I did feel like it was setting it up that it was a bit of a story about him and her, and I was becoming a bit engrossed in that, and then, yeah, then rolls on to other things, doesn't it? So, I, I don't know, yeah, it just left me feeling a little bit confused, I think, by the end of it, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it and The Trial of the Chicago 7 both have an enormous amount of nominations, and I think they'll yeah. both be those films that are nominated for everything and get nothing. 
Yeah. And I think you'll okay. actually find things like Nomadland and Minari and Promising Young Woman yeah. actually coming through and scooping quite a few. And I think you'll yeah, really think see so. a lot of representation this year. You know, I think you're yeah. going to see very few middle-aged white men getting up and winning. I think you're going to see a lot of women and a lot of people of color winning. Yep, for sure. And, you know, The Trial of Chicago 7 is a, is a really good film. It's a really solid movie, but it's just not, it's not of the caliber of the other films probably. And like you say, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different year this year and a different, uh, different filmmakers to be celebrated, which is great. Mm. Also, The Trial of the Chicago 7, um, in a different way to Promising Young Woman, but no less, has an ending that infuriates me because the trial of the Chicago seven has this incredible goosebumpy ending that gives you goosebumps and makes you sort of want to cry happy tears. And it's bullshit. It didn't happen. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So this historical movie ends with a fake ending that didn't happen. That is purely designed to make you feel good and give you goosebumps, but it's, it's totally falsely earned. Oh, wow. There you go. I didn't know that. You know what I'm talking about. You know the ending. Yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking about. That, that didn't happen. Right. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that at the time? No. Did you enjoy no. the film? Go and look it up. Or yeah. Well, I I saw it and I was like, oh my god, that ending is incredible. If that's what yeah. happened, that's that's why they made the film. And then I looked it up and I was like, no, it didn't happen. Didn't. <laughs> you just invented that. Well, he is a fantastic writer, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, he wrote his own version of what should have happened. Exactly. <laughs> so a couple of nominations I just want to point out because I like, speaking of middle-aged white men getting up onto the podium and winning an Oscar, I would be, I thought Paul Racy in Sound of Metal was just, to, to use a cliched critic's term, a revelation. I'd never seen him before and I just saw yeah. him and I was like, man, you are an actor. Yeah, he's terrific, isn't he? I mean, look, I, I'm a huge fan of Riz Ahmed. I, I mean, I, you know, so I think acting chops wise, that film was was fantastic. I was totally engrossed. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought both both those cast members were were amazing in that movie. I was a big yeah. fan of that film, actually. I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, that movie. I, like you say, I remember talking to you about it, and you felt like you knew how it was going to end straight away, but. Um, it is it is a, an accomplished piece of filmmaking, I think. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. It totally works. Mm. It absolutely works. It's just when you place it alongside most of the movies this year, it feels very, very, to me, conventional. It's, yeah. it's your conventional yeah. addict drama combined with your conventional disability drama. Yeah. But it's a very well-done version of both. <laughs> yeah, it's a very uniquely done version of that, isn't it? Like you say, it is, it is slightly formulaic, but I guess it's, it's handled uniquely because of the hearing loss and the soundscape and um, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the representation of, of, you know, that the storyline of, of what's more important in terms of like hearing or becoming part of a new community, I, I thought was really interesting and engaging. So, yeah. Now uh, we'll just do a couple more categories before we wrap up. I got to say yeah. best actress in a supporting role is really interesting. Because it feels to me that the two front run I mean, there's the Glenn Close of it all in Hillbilly Elegy, which is just like ridiculous. 
I mean, yeah. I assume I haven't seen that movie. I'm not going to see I, that movie. Nobody, have, yeah. 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 It's what they say. Basically, it's not. Oh, great. you've seen it? I saw it. I couldn't help myself. It was on Netflix. I thought I'd take it on. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not great. <laughs> right. So, so put her aside for a second. I mean, she might win because of Glenn Close of it all. But if you put her aside, it seems to be between Maria Bakalova for Borat's yep. subsequent movie film and Ya Chung Yun, who is mm-hmm. the grandmother from Minari. So both of those, what a great contest. Amazing, right? I, I, I think you're right. I think it'll be one of, one of, the, one of the two for sure. Yeah. And then I guess just talking about, I mean, yes, Minari seems to be in the mix there for a bunch of things, but it feels to me at this month out or whatever, I feel that the battle for kind of a bit of a sweep is actually forming up between Nomadland and Promising Young Woman. And I think that's a really interesting contest because Nomadland is the very definition of naturalism. You've got Frances yeah. McDormand giving a purely naturalistic performance. She's giving it amongst non-actors, so real people telling their real stories. I mean, you can't get more naturalistic slash realistic than that versus a uh, promising young woman, which the whole movie is hyper-stylized, including a central performance by Carrie Mulligan that is a stylized performance to suit a stylized movie. So those movies even though they're female directors and they're sort of female-led subjects and blah, blah, they couldn't be more different. Yeah, I agree. Polar opposites, which is exciting, right? That's what's beautiful about the Oscars. And I, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think it will be, you know, they've definitely been the darlings, I guess, of, of the award season so far. So I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think both will probably be the big winners on the night. Anything else you want to particularly mention about uh, the nominees or the films? I I was just looking. I've just got the list in front of me, and I was just looking at. I thought best actress in a leading role is like also a really you know that's going to be a tough contest because I thought you know you've got Francis and Kerry who you just talked about, but you've also got Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman who I thought was incredible, and Viola Davis. So I mean, that's a strong field, right? Like who's going to win that? That is a strong field. I'm. I'm going to suggest right now that Carrie Mulligan's going to win it since you asked. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, Frances McDormand is just, that's a major performance. That is a textbook, brilliant, naturalistic performance. But she does win it twice. Yep. And once again, the Carrie Mulligan performance is more unexpected. Yeah, right. Yep. You know, you know, going into Nomad Land, if you've heard anything about it, oh, Frances McDormand's going to be great in that role, and she is. <laughs> but you don't know going into Promising Young, you've never seen, you know, the British ingenue Carrie Mulligan yeah. do that before. Yeah. yeah, agreed. I think it was funny, isn't it? A few months ago, I think everybody was thinking it would be Frances, but over the last sort of last month or so, I, I, I feel like it's Carrie is sort of firming up. I mean, both amazing performances. But like I say, I thought Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman was fantastic as well. So she'll be kind of unlucky to a degree. You know, six months people were sort of raving about that performance and saying that that was a, a real chance. So really tough field. 
And once again, that's all to do with the strange rollout of films this year because various films have various momentums at different times. Like I feel like Nomadland, because it came out in festivals a long time ago, might have lost some of its momentum, whereas Promising Young Woman, which actually came out in Australia, I saw that in cinemas like at least seven months ago. It was out in cinemas ages ago, but it's only just really being seen in America. So Promising Young Woman, to me, has the most momentum. Yeah, that seems to be the film that's got the most heat at the moment, doesn't it, that everyone's talking about. Like you say, I'm not surprised at all that your your episode discussing that was the big one, and I've seen so many articles and read so many articles about it online as well. So it seems to be the, the, the talking point film at the moment. So whereas you're right, you know, Nomadland was out just sort of six or seven months ago, and so was Pieces of a Woman, wasn't it? It was out at Venice. And so I think both those films, because they had sort of festival premieres, have sort of been overshadowed a little bit by Promising Young Woman because of the, yeah, because of the, the landscape in America in terms of rolling out the films. Yeah, and then Minari is the one that other people, the the real sort of nerds, the real wonks are saying, oh, it's going to be Minari for Best Picture because they look at the preferential voting ballot system. And if you can really get your head around that, that basically favours that film that everyone is going to put as number two or three, but nobody hates. And that (laughs) film, when you think about it, could be Minari. Yeah, because it's so sweet, right? I don't know anybody that doesn't like that film. It's a beautiful, simple, sweet movie. I really enjoyed it. But you're totally right. It wouldn't be my first or second choice probably. It's a a comfortable third. So I didn't know about the preferential voting. I didn't know how that works. So, yeah, it could sneak in. (laughs) If your film has a lot of ones but also a few eights, you will lose to a film that has nothing but twos and threes. All right. And I can imagine that Promising Young Woman and Nomad Land yep. would have a few eights. You know, there would be people who simply don't like them um, yes, and there'll be yes. people who love them. But everyone gets that Minari is good. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting what, – what's the date this year? I should know. When, when is it? When's the actual um, date? April 25th. Okay. All right. So it will have meant that there's been 18 months between Oscars, which will mean that next year there'll only be nine months between or whatever it is, or six months between Oscars. So it'll be this really condensed year. Doesn't Parasite winning feel years ago? Like I just think, I've been reminded a few times that that was last year and it just feels so long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that a time? Innocent days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's true <laughs> luke eve's film i met a girl is depending on when you're listening to this either about to drop on netflix or in that's in australia or has already dropped on netflix in australia it is available on various streaming sites in the united states if you are in korea it sounds like you can go see it at the cinemas if you are in germany it sounds like you're about to be able to go see it in the cinemas uh, Luke, let's check in with each other after the Oscars and see see if what we were talking about makes any sense whatsoever. That would be great. <laughs> Thanks for the chat, CJ. Good to catch up. Stay well. Cheers.